Everybody, Will Hauk here with the Roots Rednecks and Radicals, and I have a special show for you today. Mr. Dom Flemons is on the show. I had a chance to uh, talk with him recently about his music and uh, his most uh, recent album, which is super great. And uh, we just had a really long, fun conversation. And uh, uh, this guy is just a, a musical genius and a pleasure to talk to. So excited to share this show with you. Before we get to that, I wanted to remind you to give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook. Search up the show if you haven't done that and also wherever you're listening to this if you could like and subscribe uh, to the show and leave a comment that would be amazing it really helps uh, the show with you know algorithms and all that kind of stuff also uh, check out the patreon we got a Patreon uh, set up. If you go to Patreon and search up the show, uh, there you'll be able to find it. Um, all kinds of uh, extra uh, goodies and uh, extras and whatnot. And uh, also, I wanted to throw this out there, too. If you got a question, any um, uh, show ideas, um, uh, something you want to follow up with me on, um, feel free to send me an email and uh, connect that way as well. You can find it on my social media, but it's also pretty easy to remember. It's willhauk, H-O-U-K, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And, um, yeah, let's have a little conversation. So, uh, yeah, let's get to the show. Uh, so Don Flemons is also known as the American Songster, and he's truly a unique musician. A founding member of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, he makes American string music. His most recent release is Prospect Hill, the American Songster Omnibus. It's an exploration of historic sounds, instruments, and musical styles. Dom is truly a student of the history of American music, and he's a walking, talking encyclopedia of not just songs, but the stories behind the songs as well. I had a chance to chat with him about his music at a music festival recently. I got to see him perform as well, which is always a pleasure, and we had a great conversation about his music. I hope you dig it. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for for joining me so much. It's a uh, it's a pleasure uh, to chat with you. So the last time uh, we chatted, we talked about uh, Black Cowboys and uh, saw you perform out in Elko. That was uh, phenomenal at the Cowboy, National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And uh, uh, the most recent album you have out is Prospect Hill, which isn't recent necessarily, but um, it's kind of a collection of things. And I was wondering if you could just um, uh, talk a little bit about that that album and, and kind of the, the songs on it and the, the new release and kind of the, the structure of that whole thing. Oh, sure thing. Well, with uh, with uh, Prospect Hill, the American American songster omnibus. So you have to imagine that I guess when I was when I was leaving the Carolina Chocolate Drops, I, I really wanted to um, showcase some of the different parts of my musical uh, story, my musical journey, and also sort sort of my um, uh, like some of my interesting musical experimental ideas that I, I had wanted to put forth for quite a while because of course in a group you can only do so much you have to compromise and then we were for the most part very much a live performance group so when it came to so doing um, some of the more complex arrangements it um, it was very difficult to get compromised so that was one of the things with the group we all asserted a very strong opinion so that so when I got into the studio for Prospect Hill I I found a, a wonderful engineer Jason Richmond and I wanted to experiment with the idea of having someone who wasn't just a, a folk music or a bluegrass producer 
producing the rec or producing and engineering because I took the production seat on that one because I also had wanted to do that for quite a while as well because um, I always noticed that a lot of um, you know jazz records they feature acoustic instruments but they're engineered in a really wonderful way with a very clean sound and then they tend to do a lot of close miking but in a different way than some of the other acoustic and Americana type of engineers might do it so that was one of the goals there so um, once we got together I had a variety of uh, numbers that I wanted to put together that would showcase that um, because it's you know playing string band music a lot of the time it's not clear to people that there are different uh, points of um, you know digression where you can find touches of blue uh, bluegrass and blues country music as well as jazz and ragtime within the string band and then also um, fife and drum music um, I've I've always experimented with having. Um, not just drums, but different types of percussion in, in in my string band music, and and really emphasizing some of those underlying rhythms that are within a lot of the um, the old time music. And so I did that a lot with the group as well. And so that was something I just wanted to delve wholesale into it. So when I when I left the group, I I had two albums in my mind. I had Prospect Hill and then I had Black Cowboys and so I just took them all just one step at a time. So I, I was working with Music Maker Foundation which is a wonderful nonprofit which I've worked with uh, for a long time and I'm still on their advisory board so I've I've worked with them for quite a while and one of the songs I guess that I wanted to experiment with was one called Georgia Drumbeat that came from their their archives and just to briefly tell you about that one, so Timothy Duffy recorded a fellow named James Davis, and so what James Davis did, uh, he was out in Kathleen, Georgia, which is uh, near Atlanta, sort of, um, but he grew up with fife and drum music in his family, so his father and his uncle played fife and bass drum, and over time, what um, James Davis did was that he learned the electric guitar, and so he took the melodies that he knew from the fife and drum and he turned it into what he called Georgia Drumbeat, which was electric guitar and, and uh, drum set. And so that was just a beautiful style of playing and, and Tim had all these wonderful recordings uh, that he did in the, the juke joint with James Davis. So I always loved this sound. But when so I... When would, when would that have been recorded and like what time period? Well, um, James Davis was first recorded by George Mitchell in the late 1960s. Okay. And so then when, uh, when Timothy Duffy met him, that was in the early 1990s. Oh. And so the style, it was very interesting because when you hear George Mitchell's stuff, he's playing much faster. So it almost would remind you of something like like some like like Jerry Reed or something like that. So even though it's a rural black music had a very like up tempo country sound. And but by the 90s this the tempo had slowed so much that it took on a different type of bluesy quality that was kind of I mean somewhere between like Link Ray and R.L. Burnside because it's the style isn't really built on full melodies but it's built on very interesting riffs and so for Georgia Drumbeat it's like um, the song itself which is it has a it just just a little fragmentary melody that just repeats again and again 
and um, it, I just got obsessed with trying to figure out how to arrange this and so when I started to mess with it I put it back on acoustic guitar and when I started to mess with it a little bit more it started to take on again a type of a surf type of quality to it and so um, being in E minor I couldn't think help but think about other songs that are kind of in that vein like Pipeline or um, any number of uh, Dick Dale's um, you know instrumentals that aren't Miser Lou um, and I just started to really uh, pull that out a little bit and as I was in the studio I decided to do a have a foundation of bass drum and snare drum so I had um, I had a fellow named Ben Hunter and then I had another fellow Guy Davis so Guy Davis was playing snare drum the great blues singer and then Ben Hunter he usually plays fiddle but he really got into a great beat on the bass drum so we had that a little three-piece going on and then as as I started to go a little bit forward with the recording this is now where we get into the the American songster omnibus so I first had it with this trio and it sounded great but to my ears I also wanted to show people that I could do something that was a little bit more expansive uh, than what I had done before with the trio and so I decided to add um, Guy Davis playing uh, amplified harmonica which is not a normal thing he does he does a lot of acoustic harmonica but had him plug in and and do a nice ripping distortion harmonica and then I I sidestepped it with another fellow Brian Horton who I'd gotten to meet through Branford Marcellus and he did uh, soprano saxophone and so I started, I tried to get into a little bit of a vibe like um, like Albert Collins or something, uh, some of that sort of later electric blues that's a bit harder edged. So when Prospect Hill originally came out in 2014, I had that harder edged blues sound. So that's kind of where a lot of the songs, uh, that's where my mindset was with a lot of those songs. I wanted to do something that was broader and it could show a little bit more of the influence of jazz, a little bit more of rock and roll, and some of the different types of music that I was into outside of just the acoustic music people already knew. And so uh, when it, uh, I guess, uh, whew, uh, guess around 2018, um, that Prospect Hill finally went out of print through Music Maker Foundation through the label. Uh, but it was always an album that sold well on, on the table and also people knew me through that because that was kind of my first major introduction even though that was my third solo album it was my first major introduction to people outside of the group and I just thought it was a shame to have this album go out of print and so um, as I started to work with um, my uh, manager Jeff D'Elia I started to look around for labels to reissue uh, Prospect Hill and so Omnivore, um, Omnivore Recordings uh, and, uh, and Cheryl, um, um, uh, Cheryl Pulaski uh, over at Omnivore Recordings was so kind to want to take Prospect Hill on. But in the course of working on Prospect Hill, first I did Prospect Hill itself. And now again you gotta imagine this is a time when, uh, when Record Store Day is really starting to blow up but it's before it became sort of a widespread phenomenon like it is now. Now it's a major industry event. So it was still something where people were still scratching their heads wondering, Does, will anybody buy vinyl records? Does anybody care about that stuff? And I'd been fighting since 2006 to have vinyl records for every one of my albums. And I'd, uh, I had all these extra leftovers from Prospect Hill 
and uh, a lot of it were um, pieces of what ended up happening with uh, with Georgia drumbeat bass drum and snare drum so there was a section of the session where I had Guy Davis on snare drum and I was playing bass drum because I started out playing bass drum in the marching band so if you get me behind a marching bass drum there's a lot of things I can do and that's my one formal training if any that I have and so we had a bunch of different tracks that were just little experimental tracks that had this bass drum and snare sound and so I decided to craft these recordings into ambient pieces. Now again, this is a standard thing that people are doing now where they have ambient pieces that are one minute, one and a half minute long. And so I had about three or four numbers uh, that I also had recorded that didn't make it onto Prospect Hill. So I crafted a, an EP for Record Store Day in 2015 called What Got Over, which featured a little bit more, a more of a, my own playing because Prospect Hill I had session musicians that were playing as the band for songs I had arranged and so with what got over I wanted to experiment with having the my own music and my own playing on a lot of those tracks so I had these two records for a long time Prospect Hill and what got over so when I started talking with Cheryl about it I said you know I have these two records and um, because what got over came out on record store day and didn't come out in any other form it would be great to reissue what got over with prospect hill so that's where it started and then the the third part uh, which i ended up calling the drum major instinct came when i asked jason richmond the engineer if we had anything else in the can and since we worked so much on the instrumentals i saw the way that more instrumental music and moods for music was becoming a thing out in the world and other artists were doing it just outside of all uh, acoustic and string music I saw a lot of artists were starting to do this this type of music so I asked him I said are there any instrumentals that we can that you can send me uh, that that might work as their own musical statements and he sent me 12 additional tracks that we had recorded so this was all done in a five-day session so we it was you know I'm I've been a big fan of Bob Dylan and I've I, I've I having studied his recording recorded career I've seen that there's a power in being able to have tons of material cutting tons of material and having a lot of stuff left over because then you can use it for some other purpose down the road such as with the omnibus so we had prospect hill which was a again a 38 minute record a 20 minute record we all got over and then i was able to pull another 25 minutes with the drum major instinct and then also it, it since we were reissuing it i decided why not why not approach the uh, the liner notes again and also repackage the whole thing um with a lot of the work i was doing at that time and with timothy duffy we shot um upward to about a hundred different uh, tintype, wet plate tintype photos, just just wanting to get material together. And there was just a lot of stuff that had never been used, so we decided to make it a tintype book. And so that's that's how the Omnibus came together. So it was just uh, bringing all those pieces into one place and really showcasing the whole song cycle for, um, for the Prospect Hill sessions. Right. Yeah, so 
on those tin types is that did he do it in that traditional style um well, with, with Tim, it was really interesting. So years back, um, I got to know a photographer by the name of Bill Steber, and um, the, the Carolina Chocolate Drops did a cover feature for Living Blues magazine in which Bill shot a tintype. And so this, uh, this photography style is the first style that came after the daguerreotype photo, which is the first mainstream uh, portrait uh, photography. And so the silver plate, uh, silver nitrate wet plate photography, it's it's literally like you, you see in uh, some movies where you have cyanide and all these chemicals and and basically you you shoot on a gigantic camera and um, you place this um, metal plate into all these chemicals and it develops almost like a Polaroid a Polaroid picture and so um, Tim Timothy Duffy he saw what what Bill Steeple was able to do and he thought at first he wanted to work with the music maker artist because there are a lot of elder southern performers he thought it'd be a great way to uh, capture portraits of all the artists that he worked with and at that time i was living in north carolina so basically every time they would have a session they would call me and i'd come down and i'd take four or five different tin types and, and i did everything from experimenting from uh, I made one where I had all of my instruments laid out like you'd find in an old junk shop, one of those photos. And then we just started experimenting with different types of, um, different types of uh, positioning, different types of angles, and then we got into action shots. So when you see the cover of uh, the Prospect Hill of American Songster Omnibus, that's actually a series of four different tintypes where I'm showcasing my guitar flipping trick where I actually flip the guitar around and under my leg. And so we, we posed it out so we could make it into a series of four uh, portraits. Of course, there's just one on the cover there. But that was something that we kept working with, is trying to figure out different ways to visually show something very exciting. And so that was where it started. And then we just started to just whittle them down. Like I said, I have upward to about 100 different tin types of different sorts. So we just tried to figure out what would be the most effective story to tell. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the style of the photography it, it, it looks amazing, you know, and it fits the it fits your style of, of you know old timey stuff and, and kind of um, focusing on that. So that's cool. Yeah, and, and even uh, Tim did a lot of experimenting with different types of light fixtures and whatnot, because a lot of tin type photographers work with a very organic approach, organic approach where there's natural lighting and all those sort of things. And so he's found a whole system in which he he shoots them, so they even have a very unique quality, even for that sort of tintype and then the the excitement of seeing your tintype in a negative form well again like a th think of a giant polaroid where when you first take it it has kind of like blobs and then it develops but you have to imagine this is just like almost like it you put it into a little uh, container with a bath and then you just see the image burn itself onto this metal plate and it becomes this beautiful lifelike image and we and I decided to use this both on the omnibus as well as black cowboys because then as I started to work on the Black Cowboys record, I thought, you know, one of the, the ways that people um, think about uh, of cowboy lore is through the tintype photos that many of the people, like from Wild Bill, Bill Hickok on, took during the early 20th century. So then we, we experimented in a whole different way of just uh, showcasing um, Wild West photos of the 1880s, but in, in the modern day. That's, that's fun. I like that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about instruments because you have 
one you play so many and um you, you also have very um storied instruments like um uh, big head joe is one of did you bring big head joe i didn't bring him this time i have to I actually have to drive to bring big head joe because it's such a big band show that's the, so I, I did bring him this time okay yeah yeah he's, he's a he's a storied guy I and mean, then the one you're playing now i wanted to talk about big head joe but i also wanted to talk about the one you were just playing um that it's a four string right? right and um you did some crazy tricks with it too that was that was fun to watch <laughs> That was really interesting, but uh, yeah, because you tell you, you alluded to it on stage that there's a there's a story behind the banjo. But can you can you talk about that instrument? Absolutely. Well, you know, my my journey into banjo uh, started when I had a friend out in um, out in Flagstaff who had uh, let me borrow a banjo actually, and it was a five string, and he had popped the fifth string out of it, and so I first learned to play banjo by just trying to pick uh, guitar songs on the banjo since the tuning is just similar enough to be able to play a little bit of guitar um, and so I started to first learn all of the chords on the banjo and then over time I then found a record called uh, Sweet Emma in the Preservation Hall Jazz Band and that was really one of my first introductions to Dixieland uh, Jazz Banjo which is a uh, usually played on a plectrum a lot of times on a tenor banjo but four strings I also have always been a big fan of um, of music from the Caribbean and there's a lot of four string banjo playing there and so a lot of calypso music, mento music, um, also Haitian music features four-string banjo. And so there was a little bit of that that was in the background when I started to started to mess with the banjo. And then over time I started to listen to like Flatten Scruggs. I then got into um, Gus Cannon. And uh, I started to see that there was this strain of banjo playing that you know bluegrass is always exciting to listen to so i always really enjoyed that sound even though i never really got to be a great three finger banjo player like that um but there was also the strain of blues music that was within the banjo's history that i just kept following and um, of course in 2005 when i went out to the gathering which subsequently uh, had me leaving arizona and go out to north carolina starting the chocolate drops and everything like that that was really uh, a conduit into the the old-time music world um, with with some actual guidance before then I was just searching out banjo in any way I could find it so uh, my first major professional banjo was a uh, was the the Deering Sierra plectrum banjo um, and I had a Bakelite harmony banjo for a lot of years a tenor banjo and eventually it fell apart and it was right al along that time that I, I I got uh, familiar with Deering, and then I, I asked them if they had, you know, because again, learning, learning just on my own personal discovery, I didn't realize that there was a longer-necked four-string banjo compared to a shorter-necked four-string banjo. And because I played a lot of blues on the banjo, it really was very helpful to have a longer neck on my banjo. Um, more frets? It has it has more frets yeah. on it, mm -hmm. and then playing it, I usually play an open G. I never really did play in fifths or like a like a cello, like a lot of four string banjo players. Oh. And so I was. It also allowed for a bigger sound to come out of the banjo with it being an open G. And so when I had finally had my my chance to get a a Deering banjo, it was on from there. You know, I wanted to get a tone ring in it because I liked that. Um, 
I liked that big sound and I liked how how loud you could get on the banjo because up to that point I had played um, banjos without out tone rings or ones that had open backs and I found that especially in a full band setting it was so hard to hear it it, it was just it, it was one of those things where that tone ring made all the difference for me okay now I, I'm not super duper familiar with banjo styles I don't know what a tone ring is is that on the, the the body of it yeah the tone ring is on the back of the banjo and what it what it does is it it just it just uh it amplifies the sound and to say it lightly it just it, it makes it so much louder and forceful going out and then it also just creates a real crisp sound as well and and the Deering banjo they just have a really wonderful way they put the banjos together as well that also allow for for me to travel with it as well my my little Bakelite banjo was always hard to travel with because it really never could withstand like flying on under a plane or any of those sort of things and so just to be able to have a factory made banjo that was something that changed everything for me yeah that's awesome so what about um, uh, Big Head Joe um, what is the uh What's the story behind that banjo? And uh, it, it was part of, I, re I remember reading a while back, it was part of a, there was like a symphony of banjos. Um, and I, I have the, the story vaguely in my head, but I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on the history of that instrument as well. Oh, sure thing. Yeah, with Big Head Joe, I first encountered this banjo in 2009 when I was still living in New York City. I, w I went to a, a guitar shop uh, called the Retro Fret Vin Vintage Guitar Shop in Brooklyn. And they specialize in all sorts of very odd, unconventional uh, vintage instruments. Like they'll have uh, not just old guitars and just old banjos, but they also have like harp guitars and sort of these interesting instruments that really no longer exist in the modern context. But they're still very interesting. So I, w I went to a New Year's party over at Retro Fret and I zeroed in on Big Head Joe because it was such a huge banjo and it was in the back of the room and and for years I've played a song called Your Baby Ain't Sweet Like Mine and so the source for that song is one of the early pioneers of blues music a fellow by the name of Papa Charlie Jackson and he uh, he specialized using a gigantic six-string banjo on all of his recordings and that's one of the distinctive parts of his career and he was also the very first solo self-accompanied male blues singer in uh, blues history so I was always drawn to always drawn to the source whatever it might be so I've I've always loved the sound of uh, Papa Charlie's banjo and when I saw Big Head Joe it has a similar tailpiece and flange to Papa Charlie's banjo from the one picture they have of Papa Charlie so I was drawn to it that way as well so I went over and I started to play it and it had the particular tone when I started to play Big Head Joe it was a tone that was so similar to Papa Charlie Jackson's banjo it was almost like Having done a lot of tintype photography, it's like breaking through the old photograph and finding the real McCoy, the real instrument that, that takes you past the artifact of the past. It now brings the past right into the present. And so when I, when I saw Big Head Joe and began to play this banjo, I must have played this thing all night long. And then, um, then I got it in my mind that I need to save up for it. And it took me about four or five years before I was able to save up enough money to buy this, this uh, very rare instrument. So after I bought Big Head Joe, that's when I began to search for anything about the instrument. Like, where is it from? Why does it look so similar to Papa Charlie's Gibson banjo? Um, and then 
also who made this thing and why you know because it's the only instrument of that size and of this particular design that's that's out there in the world so it was you know so i had to i kept looking and i found at one point inside the banjo there was a little sticker that said uh, sean mcginnis and and the banjo is a cleft club deluxe brand sean mcginnis banjo and so as i as i searched it out um, I haven't found anything on Shaw, but I found stuff on Robert H. McGinnis. So the luthier who made Big Head Joe was a fellow who was a, an African-American luthier who um, he lived uh, he, he lived in Laporte, Indiana, and then he worked for the Lion and Healy Harp Company, which is a, a, a again a lot of uh, guitar history people uh, still point to the Line and Healy Company as being one of the quintessential companies that really helped spawn the guitar revolution. And even to this day, they do classical harps for the most part. And so this guy, he worked for Line and Healy for upward to 20 years, and then he moved out to New York City, where he had a shop in Harlem and his shop was between the Savoy uh, Ballroom and the Cotton Club. But he was there 10 years before the, the Harlem Renaissance. So this is a, an era that precedes the Harlem Renaissance, but it, it uh, opens up this, um, this very unique and interesting piece of American history where um, one of the... So, can I interrupt? Oh, you should, he would have been in the early 1900s, like 1910 or around... Yeah, right right around there. Okay, yeah, because um, he's... As I went to search it out, at first um, the folks over at Retrofret could not connect Big Head Joe with um, the Clef Club Orchestra. And the Clef Club Orchestra was led by a, a composer by the name of James Reese Europe, who was a World War One veteran. He led the 369th Hellfighters Brigade and brought ragtime and jazz to France for the very first time. And then he also is known for having broken the color line at Carnegie Hall by presenting 120 banjos in a single orchestra featuring banjos of different sizes and shapes to present on the Carnegie Hall stage. So that's a big piece of it. And so at first they couldn't connect the two things. But as I found uh, more information on Robert N H. McGinnis, what I found out is that he um, was the fellow who manufactured and, and built all of the banjos that James Reese Europe played. And so by, by uh, guilty by association, I found the guy who made the banjos that made this, this, uh, this banjo orchestra. And so Big Head Joe is a part of that. So it's sort of a multifaceted um, sort of history that I was able to find. There's the Papa Charlie Jackson half of the history, which is a solo performer history. Again, Papa Charlie, I don't know if he was connected to the Clef Club, but there are a lot of links in early blues and early um, jug band music, as well as early jazz that link to the Clef Club. So there's, there's a part of that. But then also to find the story of McGinnis, that's a tangible piece of the banjo orchestra uh, milieu, I'll say it that way, because what ended up happening is after um, after 1900, a lot of African-American musicians began to perform overseas, performing ragtime and banjo orchestras. So while the banjo fell out of favor here in the United States, there were banjo orchestras in Tivoli, in Germany, and in France, and all these different places. Because of course, you know, in, in Europe, they tend to study American music with um, a much more... Um, 
with much more meticulous precision because it's not American, it's not European music. So they've they tend to document uh, the music in such a way. And so in that early period leading up to the First World War, yeah, a lot of African American musicians are making their way abroad. So Big Head Joe sort of like symbolizes all these different uh, interesting pieces of um, uh, early American history. And then of course now that I've been playing the banjo out, I'm starting to present it in a modern context. So I've been uh, I had two particular um uh, sessions uh, recently. I um, well, Big Head Joe was part of the album Long Violent History from uh, Tyler Childers, which got a Grammy nomination for Best Folk Album this this year in, in uh, 2022. So that was something in the very modern context where Big Head Joe was a part of a an old timey record that that just recently came out, and then also so did you did you play on that? I did. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah, and see, I was one of the session musicians, and I had Big Head Joe on four okay. of the cuts on it. Wow. So the very first, even the first notes of the Send in the Clowns that you hear on that album, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, that's Big Head Joe playing. Uh -huh. And so Big Head Joe was was able to help bring this particular session together in a certain way. And then the other half of it, I got um, invited by a, a contemporary blues artist by the name of Fantastic Negrito to be a part of his um, recent album that actually just uh, came out just several weeks ago. Uh, it's, it's called White, White Jesus Black Problems. And and, uh, there's a song on there called The Highest Bitter in which um, he asked me to play some banjo and I'm doing this really funky, um, I don't know, it's kind of like a, almost like a, a Prince style contemporary blues song and so I'm playing like this low funk bass line with Big Head Joe so uh, taking this old hundred year old instrument and I'm placing it in a very different modern context so that's, so that's kind of the other part of it. Yeah. That's incredible. There's so much, so much history. <laughs> I find this too. I was just thinking back when the last time I chatted with you um, before uh, Elko, um, and when I was done, I was like, "God, my head's kind of spinning from all the history, like so many terms and names and different instruments and stuff." And I kind of feel that way now. So <laughs> it's good stuff, though. So thank you for that. Um, but that links into the other thing I wanted to chat with you about is that um, you, you bring in so many um, uh, artists that a lot of people haven't heard of, blues artists and ragtime and all this different stuff. Um, kind of a two-part question: What? Uh, how do you choose who you're going to research? And then um, also, um, who are some people that you're researching now mm -hmm. that are kind of, you know, um, um, uh, making you really interested in, in that whole thing? Well, I mean, when it comes to who do I research, that's all my personal journey. That's all something I, I personally have to be invested in a song, an artist, or some aspect of the music. You know, music is so... Uh, it's so, uh, I mean, it's so personal in many types of ways that, you know, I have to find, I have to find interest in something. You know, usually a song or a recording might, might move me or sometimes a personal conversation with someone might get me interested in a type of music. So that's how first I tend to research is I have an interest in a song. And then over time, the, you know, if, when um, there are certain songs that, melodically might connect to something that I've I've researched or uh, I've uh, I've tried to search out and that and, and other times it, it, it's uh, once you once you start you know going into the rabbit hole then you start finding that there's a lot of information especially now in the digital age there's so much new information that's available just being able to search it out because before what I'd have to do is I'd have to I'd have to hold on to whatever it is I was researching and then I'd have to physically go to wherever I was 
wherever that information might be. And, and because of that, that search, I would have to, I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to find whatever information was relevant and then try to f see if it fit within a, a story or a framework. Because of course when presenting a history on stage for the audience, the audience only wants to hear maybe one or two facts, maybe three facts about a song, compared to they need to hear the song and the song needs to excite them. Because of course that's that's where it always comes back for me, is the song excites me, or an instrument may excite me, or a particular musical artist may excite me for some reason and then that causes me to want to research farther into their story or whatever and that's something that I, I try to translate to people on stage is because I, I I'm always interested in trying to get get the audience to think to themselves wow that's interesting I should I should look that up too and and if I've done my due diligence it, it'll be there or or at least I'll have compiled it together in a way that hopefully they'll they'll you know grab the album and read the liner notes or what have you and um, that's one of the ways that I that I do my research there and then what was the second half of the question uh, what what um, what historical figures or historical musicians are, are kind of exciting you right now like you've been uh, researching and oh. and learning songs from and stuff well you know one one musician who's a uh, who's been of interest to me uh, recently has been um, has been D Ford Bailey the harmonica player uh, I've I've listened to him for years and years um, but recently I, I started to sit down and think about his repertoire and and the different songs that he recorded um, and tried to just break them down into into their own sort of uh, uh, segments of what types of songs they are because he did about uh, I don't know two or three blues based songs um, he has a couple of them that are fiddle tunes and then he has a couple of them that are sort of like a, a third genre of tune like the Fox Chase or the Pan American Express which are more of a uh, not not so much musical melodies but sort of interesting riffs and interesting sort of uh, um, imitations of different parts of life like the Pan American Express is a train song um, that and so he mimics the sound of a train and then with um, with the fox chase he's mimicking the sound of the old-time fox hunts and so these aren't so much musical pieces but they all, they have this sort of a, a beautiful musical quality to them because they evoke a certain sound and so he's somebody that I've been thinking about a lot I was reading his biography again um, uh, from uh, David Morton and just just reading about the way he was able to translate uh, the different songs he heard in a family context into what he would end up playing on stage that was something that was that's been of interest to me yeah that's interesting now, I've been doing um, a series on on the podcast on uh, Mexican music um, it's, it's when you talk about um, just following your interests and whatnot it, it's interesting to me how so there's so many different genres of, of mexican music and it was a part of the west um, your, your album black cowboys got me thinking about the west in a broader context and especially people of color native americans mexican americans who um aren't really included in the in the story you know like like black cowboys and whatnot and um it's it's
it's interesting to me how how many not just types of songs but different styles and and instruments that are brought in uh, in that whole thing have you ever done any research or or do you have any interest in in um, kind of like historical like Mexican music because um, I know it's part, part of your past as well yeah oh yeah absolutely I mean when I was growing up in Arizona see it, it, it you know it's funny when when you when there's folk music in your community it's so easy to overlook it many times I think back on a couple of restaurants I used to go to as a kid um, there was one place called La Canasta in, in central Phoenix and the patriarch of the family and his son uh, on certain Sunday brunches they would just they would uh, they would serenade the tables uh, even to this day, I, I wear a, a guitar strap that's a classical guitar strap that's like a, a mariachi strap. And that's something that goes back to those days when I think back. Because they would just walk around the tables and sing beautiful duetto songs, singing in harmony. And, you know, the old man played the lead and the, young, the, the younger son, he played the rhythm guitar with him. And I think about things like that because at that time it didn't mean anything to me as a young, young man there. Because it was before I'd really gotten interested in playing the music. Once I left Arizona though, I really got hip to Arhuli records and I started to listen to some of those amazing early groups like um, like uh, Los Montañaneses de Alamo, which is a great uh, old-time uh, uh, old-time Tejano group that um, it, they featured it was flute saxophone and and um, guitaron and guitar so and, and fiddle as well and it's like so they had three melody instruments in that group and and that that got me really uh, got me really rolling with a lot of a lot of the that early Mexican music that they especially on that label because our Huli's just done wonders when it comes to issuing a lot of early recordings from the 20s 30s 40s 50s and 60s and then also recording newer albums of um, of uh, wonderful musicians and I actually had a great uh, moment talking to um, talking with Chris Strakowitz, uh, the founder of Arhuli. Uh, a few years back, I interviewed him for the Oxford American uh, uh, magazine for their music issue, and it was amazing. See, we had one, one, we did three interviews. One interview was just talking about him a little bit, because it was all based, uh, this magazine was all based around Texas music for this particular time. And so I talked to him a little bit about how he got interested in Texas music. Then we talked about the blues, but then at the end of that second interview, it actually, I didn't realize it was going to be a three-part interview, because then I said, well, can you tell me about something about Mexican music? He said, hold on now, we have to have a whole other interview if we're going to start talking about that. And in some ways, it's one of the, one of the pieces of, um, especially with the uh, folklorico music uh, from uh, the Mexican-American communities, it's, it's such a, it's a whole world of music, literally, which is, I think, is one of the reasons that, um, it, it can seem very inaccessible in certain ways. There's also a language barrier. Yeah. There's, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the generation of uh, half African-American, half Mexican-American. My mom speaks some Spanish, but that they, my Mexican half of the family, they sort of left Spanish speaking behind. So, so my, my, um, my researching into the music there's a language barrier that's literally there and um and that's something that i've just uh, I've, I've always appreciated the music and i have a lot of different recordings of of these wonderful performers but there's um 
there's a little bit of a barrier in the way. But um, right. I've listened to a lot of different stuff from the orchestra music as well as um, more of the uh, the folkloric music uh, from uh, the Tejano and Norteña music. And then there's even interesting music, just like on Prospect Hill, I have a song called Sonora, Sonoran Church Two-Step. And that comes from the Guachi Fiddlers, who were a uh, Southern Arizona Native American string band. And... Um, Right around the time I left Arizona in 2005, I found a CD put out by Canyon Records, which is um, was the very first Native American-owned record label, and that they they were in the heart of Phoenix. I actually, <laughs> I actually used to uh, work at a public pool that was across the street from Canyon Records, and I used to go there a bunch and pick up Native American and Indigenous music that was of interest. But the Guachi Fiddlers, see, like just to kind of give you a sense of how big this world can be. This album was made in the the late 1980s, and the two fiddlers that are leading this band, they were a part of the missionaries in southern Arizona that were being taught by the Mexican orchestras that were coming up from south of the border. Oh, wow. And so as kids, they learned how to play the violin, and so they learned how to play mazurkas as, as well as waltzes. and. Um, and polkas and whatnot that were Mexican string band songs, but in the context of the Native American string band, these guys created a type of music that. Um, oh, what was it? What's the name of the music? It's um, it's called uh, Wyla Wyla music, I believe. Uh, w a i l a. And so they did an early string band version of this music that um, features two fiddles, a guitar. And then I believe it's snare drum and the uh, the powwow drum, and it's beautiful sounding music. And so when I first heard this, it just knocked me out so much that I I just kept up with trying to learn some of these songs. And Sonoran Church Two Step is one of the ones I adapted onto the banjo, and I played it on Prospect Hill. And um, but then there's just and then it evolved later. As um, Mexican music began to change, they then started to bring in the button accordion and also the saxophone. And so now it's called chicken scratch music is one of the names of the more modern equivalent of this this type of music. And so yeah, I'm always I'm always searching the record stores for any old thing. I mean, you know, whatever has a uh, whatever has a unique sound that catches my ear. That's the that's the type of music I'm drawn toward. You know, I, even. Um, I even was recently a, a part of a soundtrack for the the Netflix movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, oh, yeah. and I got to play um, on the soundtrack. I got to play a song um, called Skit Scat Doodle Do. I got to play Jug on that track, and that came from the Louisville Jug Blowers, and that's a different type of jug band music that um, that people uh, aren't as familiar with. You know, there's the Memphis Jug Band which are a blues-based jug band, but the Louisville jug bands are sort of a jazz-based type of jug band music. And so I've been finding myself researching out the different jug bands as well, because I, when I started out in playing music, I was the, I think I'm still one of the only uh, African-American jug players to, that plays uh, jug band music at all. And so I found that 
uh, from the moment that I started to play, because I was just interested. I thought it was an interesting sounding instrument and I wanted to learn and I taught myself how to make the, the tones and the sounds on the, on the jug. And um, then all of a sudden I found I was in a position where I was the only tradition bearer of this entire tradition uh, out there in the world. So then all of a sudden it, it, it allowed me to see that there was a value to having that in my repertoire. Yeah, it is such a, a strange instrument. I, I have a buddy who plays jug, and I've been playing with him. Nice. And, uh, and he's Japanese-American, so maybe he's the only Japanese-American jug player. Well, <laughs> you guys should get together. Careful. There's a group, the, the, old, the old Southern Jug Blowers, and they're, they're, they're a Japanese group, all Japanese. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd wonder if, he, if he's heard of them or, or not. He, may have the, he said that there's a, a festival in Japan of, mm -hmm. uh, of jug band music, and yeah, he's been to that. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, and they're all... They, and, um, well, one of the Louisville bands was the um, Earl McDonald's old Southern Jug Band, and they all dressed because um, they um, they sold flour like you know like a, like the bluegrass bands like a, you know like Flatt and Scruggs they sold Martha White's flour. The um, uh, Earl McDonald sold the Ballard Ballards they were the Ballards Jug Band, and they had a flour company that was the Ballard Flour Company, and so they all dressed as like in baking in Baker's uh, <laughs> attire. And so this same group here, the old Southern Jugglers, they also dress in the same, the same Baker's clothing like the Earl McDonald's. So it's really a treat to hear them play because they're all dressed in these white suits like Baker's, you know? <laughs> Well, that's that's a lot of really good stuff. Um, in this next year, you've been touring and whatnot. Do you have any uh, albums coming out? Any new projects? Um, uh, what, what's kind of coming up for you around the band here? Well, I I did record a, a new record earlier this year, and I, it should be coming out at the beginning of 2023. Uh, I don't have a date yet, but it should be earlier in the year. But that one's going to be a combination of of a, a few different country ballads as well as uh, a few traditional songs I've put together and and a few instrumentals as well but that one's um, that one's going to be focusing a lot on original material so I wrote a lot of original songs in the traditional style as well as um, as some country music as well nice awesome so early 2023 is mm -hmm. we should be looking for that awesome and then if people want to find more about you and whatnot where can people find you online social media and all that kind of stuff the best way would be to go to the american that's the website but you can always look me up on uh, facebook and instagram and twitter and and i'm i'm in all those different places under my own name dom flemings but you can find me as the american songster anywhere you go Fantastic. All right. Well, I feel like I've taken up uh, enough of your time today. It was a great conversation, and I appreciate you chatting with me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Dom, for chatting with me, and thanks for listening. Make sure to check him out online, and while you're at it, give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook. Like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to this, and most importantly, until next time, have a good one. Oh, if I stayed away.